you're listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast, a daily podcast dedicated to helping B2B marketing, sales, and customer success professionals become masters of their craft. It's Wednesday, and in these episodes, Sangram and myself, James Carberry, focus on personal development. We'll share books and other resources that are helping us get a little bit better every single day. And remember, like Sangram always says, without a community, you are simply a commodity. Here we go. Sangram here. All right. Today's guest host is Steve Apt, a good friend of mine. He's an ABM strategist, Quarry. He's already done a whole series. You might be familiar with him now. He has done a four-part series on ABM for the enterprise where he had people from Oracle and, and many of the companies just share the practical tips and, and techniques that they're using for account-based marketing strategies that goes across, by the way, marketing and sales, so not just marketing. And, and this time, he's bringing a couple of amazing guests who are, again, not only thought leaders, but also practitioners. So you're going to get a real taste of what it takes to do these big deals with account-based mindset. Here we go. Hello, Flip My Funnel, and welcome to a very special two-part episode of our Enterprise ABM series, where we've been talking to leaders in the space of very complex ABM in large enterprises, but we're taking it to a whole other level in this two-part episode with Christopher Engman. Now, I don't even know where to go in introducing Christopher. He's founded four companies in MarTech and CleanTech and other spaces. He's been a CEO, CRO, CMO. He's an investor in 12 companies. He's a mega deal sales leader himself. And he and his co-authors of the forthcoming book, how mega deals, how multi-billion dollar deals are done and what the rest of us can learn from it. He and his co-authors of that did extensive research with mega deals, sales and marketing leaders around the world. And I still feel that even with all this, I haven't fully captured the intro. So Christopher, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. And how about I throw it over to you and I want to know how you introduce yourself. Thank you, Steve. It's always a pleasure to speak and meet you. So I think you did a pretty good intro. Um, I'm a bit of a nerd. I really like to explore things at depth. I I almost ended up being a math scientist. I even worked uh, for a period for the Swedish government, uh, improving their budget forecasting with quite advanced mathematical methods. But then I moved into marketing and sales, but I still have a bit of that mathematical brain. So I kind of like to see patterns, see things that are changing and try to formulate them, often take complex things and make them into things that people can understand. And then uh, when I ran Vendamore for 10 years, we worked with over 100 Fortune 500 companies. And the story behind Megadeal started then, uh, where we did workshops with most of these companies prior to helping them around some of their largest deals. And what I noticed was that what they talked about and did in their deals, both from the marketing side, where I myself was very involved, but also on the sales side and finance and contracting was something I've never read about in any kind of sales or marketing literature. So I often asked them, so guys, uh, what's uh, your kind of deals? Where are those described? And 
the answer was always, well, they're not described in any kind of book. And the books that are in the market are very focused on dialogue techniques, how you run meeting after meeting to move a, a process forward. Whereas in our world, where we do multi-billion dollar deals, it's much more about a, a lobbying game where we might have 20 groups of people, so in total over 100 stakeholders, both inside the account and outside in, in other companies around the deal, which is changing the game, moving it more into a lobbying kind of consensus creating game, and also much more risk mitigation focus as opposed to unique selling points of value. And those things, and much, much, much more, were things that I saw myself and they pointed out was not covered in any kind of literature. So, so I started to, to produce a PowerPoint material, just collecting the golden nuggets from, from the companies we worked with, uh, both in North America, Europe, and Asia, and produced, uh, and this is 10 years ago, produced a PowerPoint material that was called Megadeals. And the, the reason why I did that was to be able to get a bigger topic because when I came in and ABM was really new at this point in time, so when we met the Fortune 500s, uh, we could have three to four people in the room. But when I started to talk about mega deals, which I made into a lunch seminar format, all of a sudden there were, there were 50 people in the room, part of the C-suite, some of the really big hitters on the sales side and the marketing leaders so the audience inside these accounts grew substantially. And, and account-based marketing is a substantial part of mega deals if done right. So and because there is such a big consensus-creating game and risk mitigation game, which is the perfect environment for, for account-based marketing. So, so it was kind of a way to infiltrate large organizations. But then that, that was so appreciated, even though even at that stage, and it was... Uh, it was not at all as well researched as now, and it was not at all as, you know, well packaged as now. But it was really well received. And what often happened was that after each lunch seminar, there was at least one two people that came up to me and said, "Okay, you you really describe things in a great way, but but you missed one thing. There's often things coming up that, and and instead of defending what we had and say, oh great." I, re I write that down. By the way, can we have a lunch or a phone call? So I, I started to use those people that came up to me as a source of new information. So actually, people from these 100 uh, Fortune 500 companies were contributing to what then became the hypothesis of the mega deal block that we then used in the research. Instead of, we actually tried in the beginning of the research to ask open questions and start with a white paper. But this is a bit like, if, I mean, you're, you're Canadian. It's a bit, bit like having Gretzky in the room and you ask him, so Gretzky, how do you play amazing ice hockey? Here we go. Where do, so you kind of skate fast, you shoot hard, and you try to predict where the puck will be. But he'll give you a pretty stupid answer. So that method didn't work out. So we flipped it around and said, okay, instead we'll tell them, the people we interview, we tell them, this is what we've seen that people like you and your teams are doing. The goal for the coming few hours is for you to tell us where you disagree, tell us where, we, where you agree, but might want to tweak the nuances in what we say, and if there are things we're missing. So those three were the main questions. All of a sudden, we had several hour talks with these people, and the, the words were pouring out of their mouths because 
since we probed them and said, this is what you do. And when they felt, oh, because already then we were kind of close-ish to describing it well, uh, they were like, oh, wow, these guys understand this game. So they started to talk about all the main nuances and what they did and all of that. And, and uh, in the first 30 interviews, there was quite a lot of feedback. And in the rest of the interviews, the, these, there were two sentences that always came. First one was, wow, you've described what I felt my entire life in this environment. The second sentence was, and you pointed out things that I'm not doing yet. So I need to start doing a few things you, you pointed out to me. Great, great meeting. So that was very encouraging. And that made it even more interesting for us to start to, to me and my co-author, Joe, want to or in money and research. So we had a big team around this to, to do the research and, and do a really good job on it. And we also got a comment from, from some people, from the like people behind Challenges Sale and other, other books saying, wow, you, you can really have a, a, a book for a new category. This can be a big thing. And that was also very encouraging. We also have, uh, if we let's say, I mean, Flip My Fun is a lot about ABM. So many of the big leaders both from the analyst firms, but also from the CEOs and founders of various ABM companies that are, have contributed to the book. So they're, they're in the book as well. So it's actually quite related to your industry, Steve. This, this is such a massive project and, and really eye-opening to, to hear how it began and how long you've been on this, this and, and how you've been able to engage so many really heavy hitters, as you said, in, in sales and marketing and executive leadership in this research. And I want to go through that. There's a lot to unpack here, but I think we need to just pause for a moment and make sure we understand what a mega deal is, because this is not just a rebranding of you know, high ticket selling or complex selling or anything. This is a lot more than that. And, and you wrote a really great LinkedIn post recently that a bit of a teaser for your upcoming book. And it really laid out four core attributes of what a mega deal really is. And, you know, one of them is it's, it's really big. It's, you know, beyond $10 million US in a single transaction. Uh, and sometimes well beyond that, as you said, up into the billions. Mm. But there's a few other attributes there as well. Can we take a few minutes and just go through these so people have a full understanding of what a mega deal really is and how different it is from just regular, large, rather complex selling. So beyond the size, you next spoke about complexity. Right. So uh, just to comment on your initial sentences there. So if you go to Christopher Engman at LinkedIn, in the Pulse article there, you'll find actually the whole introduction chapter to the whole book. So if you're interested in this topic, you can read that chapter and, and that kind of describes what the rest of the book will cover. Uh, so the definition of a mega deal, I mean, when there is a new domain, you have to define it yourself. So this, what I'm going to give you now, isn't, there's, there's no God that told me this is the definition. We had to, we had to create one. So, so basically, when we looked at complex selling, it was covering everything from sales of copy printers to selling Boeing to Emirates uh, or selling big military equipment deal for many, many billions to a government. And those are vastly different. So we just found that this is also what people 
during the Vandemer years were pointing out. So the complex selling and complex marketing literature is, is too broad. It's covering a too broad spectrum. And this is also, to give you, know, give you an example, so you know, the 5.7 decision makers involved in a complex deal, that number doesn't say much because, yeah, if, if, you, if you put together a too wide data set, so on one end you have phone subscriptions or copy printer sales to SMBs, and then at the other end, you have large deals of infrastructure to government. And there, there are very small similarities between the two. So we felt that there is a need to describe the slightly larger and more complexities. And the, the, the attributes are, the first one to your point is between, so the smallest we've looked at is $10 million. And then the range goes all the way up to $15 billion. And then people go, oh, that's an M&A deal. No, no, no. This is a customer contract. So between $10 million up to $15 billion. The second component is complexity. So often in complex sales, we talk about the complex solution that requires some kind of consultative approach around it. But here we have vastly more complexities like contractual complexity, financial complexity. It's almost always financing involved in these deals. The decision-making process is, is not just having five people in the room and make a decision. It's, it's an organizational complexity, and often they're covering multi, multiple countries. You have a cultural complexity. So there, there's a multiple complexities involved, and then there is, a, is change management. So this is for us to, to exclude. I'll give you an example. So I can make a deal with you for $1 billion. If I say, I say, I sell raw steel to you. I sold raw steel to you last year for $1 billion. I sell a new batch of raw steel to you for another $1 billion. Is that a mega deal? No, because it's, it's more actually similar to a transactional deal. It's already, I mean, it's kind of expected that they place a new order of $1 billion. So, so change management is a component as well. The fourth piece is that they actually always so far include, well, I take that back almost always include a combination of hardware, software, and services. So it's a blend of those three. You don't reach big enough complexity and big enough amounts if you do only one of them. So most of the time you have those three combined. So those are kind of the four, four key attributes in, in mega deal. So I want to dig deeper into change management. Before we do that, though, I want to dig deeper into this complexity issue because I think that's really fascinating. And I'm so with you when you kind of call out those stats of, you know, 5.7 or 6 point, whatever it is, buyers, because it's, it is blending far too many vastly different scenarios to, to come out with a number that, that I don't find particularly helpful either. And, and obviously, there's a whole lot of selling and a whole lot of ABM and everything that goes on in, in the, that kind of, you know, single buyer unit of, you know, four, six, or eight decision makers. But you are talking about a whole other level. You're talking about influencing an ecosystem and, and right. understanding an ecosystem and mapping it out. Now, here at Quarry, some of my colleagues and I have worked on rather large and rather complex deals in, in collaboration with our clients that have involved mapping large organizations, identifying hundreds of influencers and stakeholders across multiple buying units. And that seems pretty complex to me and certainly led to some really big deals. But, but you, you think about this beyond the target organization. I mean, I, I've read some of your stuff when you're, talk, you're talking about 
politicians who come into play and, and analysts. And I mean, this is true ecosystem mapping and, and mm. navigating. Take us through how that can look in a very complex mega deal. Yeah. So, so and, and this goes back to, so there, there are the two major differences between mega deals and, and normal complex selling. It's the size of the audience, uh, and it's, it's a lot of risk uh, involved that you need to work on. So talk about the audience. So what often happens is that it's not enough to pinpoint the various stakeholders inside the account, to your point, but it's almost always, and this actually is applicable for medium-sized complex deals as well. Very often you have adjacent systems that you need to be friends with, and in mega deals you need to be, there are a lot of grants and, and permits often involved in, in deals. You need to have financing in place. There, the, the deals are so big that the owners are often involved in them. So you need to not only work with a C-suite, but go beyond that at the board and owners. And then a lot of consultants that need to be on your side. So the nature of how you deal with a mega deal is a lot like you have to map out the ecosystem, the deal-specific ecosystem with the various organizations and, and people within those around the account that you target, but also inside that account. And then a, a very, and I think you can relate to this, a very common mistake, especially by more junior people wanting to go into the heavy enterprise game, is that they underestimate the importance of involving a lot of people. So, so you need to understand the ecosystem. You need to run various consensus-creating games to this ecosystem, both with people, but also with tactics like ABM, social selling, and all of that. We can probably come back to that later. So, so and, and also what we've seen, which is really fascinating. So there's some people we've interviewed, you can kind of after the interview go, oh, that person had luck. I mean, he or she was by chance involved in a mega deal. And what we've seen, we've seen one specific difference between the people that are often in mega deals and the ones that have been it only a few times. So the serial mega dealers, let's call them that. So regardless of which company they work for, they still do mega deals. They have one particular skill that is beyond the others, that is making them stand out. You could actually have the, you could have a, an analogy with, again, ice hockey, Wayne Gretzky. He was, his super skill was to know where the puck would be a few moves ahead. So we call them ecosystem architects. So they're not only good at understanding the ecosystem as it is, they're good at understanding where it's going and they work proactively to shape where it's going and to place themselves and their deal within the, the, the ecosystem in transition. And we call them ecosystem architects or ecosystem shapers. That's kind of the Superman skill. It's not just a talent. So I would say there's one talent that I, I, we haven't done the personality tests on them, but they're probably really good at pattern recognition. If you look at some kind of like hardcore talent, but then they also work really systematically to understand the ecosystem, to read annual reports about the various companies in, in, in the whole deal and really try to understand the political games and the trends. So they're very thorough. Uh, and uh, well, to point out as well, it's not a, a one-person deal. It's always a team sell. So the marketeers and salespeople involved in one deal, and but they, as a collective, and especially the leader of that approach, is very good at understanding the current ecosystem and where it's going. That's a fascinating insight. So everyone would 
intuitively know you need to understand the organization. Next level up from that seems to be understanding the broader ecosystem. But you're saying these true serial mega deal players, that their superpower goes even beyond understanding and mapping the ecosystem, but actually influencing the future of that ecosystem and shaping that ecosystem. Yeah. I'm fascinated yeah. by that. Can mm. you give us an example or some more depth on what that really means? Yeah, so I can give you a few concrete examples. So to take some obvious names, so Elon Musk, he is good at this. Uh, you don't have to be the founder of, of Tesla to be good at this, but uh, he's got the trait. He's got the trait. He's talking about the future and he's good at placing companies and himself into that future. Uh, we also have one guy in the book who, who so there is a headphone and, and loudspeaker brand called Marshall. Marshall, you see them in pop concerts and rock concerts often on the stage. It, it, it's a brand that has a long history within the music industry, but they're kind of left behind when it comes to technology. So what Conrad did was to see that, okay, this is a super well-known brand, especially by real music lovers. They're behind when it comes to technology. The new trend is going towards headphones, but also headphones with built-in microphones. And he then, and then he knew a producer of really advanced headphones that was typically a no-brand producer. So he went to Marshall and said, guys, I'd like to license your brand and I'm great at marketing and, and I have the contacts to put together the next step for you. You make money on it without having to do anything. Um, and he made that deal and he made a deal with a producer and then he started to market the, and you find them in most, most airports, both in North America, Europe, and Asia nowadays, the Marshall branded headphones. And, and he, he made, I think it was over a billion dollars on, on that move. So that was the fastest growing company in Swedish history. And he, he was good at predicting and putting the dots together. He did not invest a lot of money into that. He was just very smart at seeing what's going on. How can I use the ecosystem here? So Marshall, strong brand, weak technology, and kind of not so innovative anymore. And they're not phenomenal at marketing. I have that. I, I, I'm good for them. They're good for me. So win-win, and I make a ton of money. And he, he um, yeah. So that's another example. You also find them in, in um, so some of the people we've, we've interviewed, they're like CIA agents. They, they're really on top of information, understanding what's going on behind the scenes. They have insights into how the owners are thinking of these companies. And, and uh, they're really, I mean, some really impressive people that we've met. I think a key thing, though, for you who listen to this, what we've noticed when we present, especially on stage in a workshop where we present the insight is that most of what we've seen is really applicable to medium-sized, complex sales and marketing. And, and I think the main reason is that when you study multi-billion dollar deals, it's a bit like studying an NHL team of the highest level. There's very little room for mistakes. It's the same in the mega deal space. So in a copy printer deal of half a million dollar, you can win it by just having a strong brand behind you. You can still be pretty lousy salesperson, you still win the deal. But in the, in the multi-billion dollar playing ground, you, you're not there unless you're really good. 
and you don't get away with mistakes. So it's good to study the best in the world. Like if you would write a book about ice hockey, you would study the Gretzkys. You wouldn't study the fifth division players. You would study the best, even though you were yourself on the fourth or fifth division, because on that level, there's no room for mistakes. So everything they do become really transparent and it's really easy to detect the successful patterns. And also, we haven't seen books that are blending the sales side of this kind of complex sales with social media, with the marketing side and how you produce the content and contracting and financing. All those blended together uh, are not covered either. So I think the book is unique, both on this kind of mega deal size of things and complexity, but also if you go one step down in complexity, combining ABM, social selling, the sales side of it, financing contract and all of that into a recipe that you can apply. That's, I think, why it has already become, even before the book launch, has become really popular among medium-sized companies that want to go into the mega deal space. So they aspire to it. And they, but already today, they benefit a lot from how we put, how we put together the, the recipes based on this research. I think in the second half of our two-part episode here. I really want to dig into that. How an individual or a small team can apply these principles and and these insights in their own careers, in their own circumstances, when perhaps they don't work for organizations that have the sort of global clout and influence and, and, and capabilities to operate at this extreme, you know, mountain moving level, I'm sure there's a tremendous amount of value there. Before we find ourselves out of this first episode, though, I want to dig deeper into some of these really incredibly large and incredibly complex deals. I guess one question I have is, you mentioned it's never an individual, it's always a team. But does it go beyond a team? Does it have to be an entire orientation of a company in order to say sell infrastructure to governments around the world or you know sell you mentioned airplanes and and I know your own experience in in clean tech I mean these are these are some incredibly large deals often targeting governments or or some level of of public decision makers is that anything that a great salesperson and a great marketer and, you know, pulling together a team can get done? Or does it require the entire company to be oriented in, in mega deal philosophies and, and uh, approaches? I, I think it's, uh, it's a combination. So first of all, you do need to want to go in that direction. Yep. Nothing that disproves something. Yeah. yeah. You know, we, we haven't found anything that disproves the fact that to become a Fortune 500 company on the B2B side, you do that by doing mega deals. We, we have seen no example of a B2B Fortune 500 company that didn't make that jump and leap without mega deals. We, haven't, we have seen no example of that. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but all evidence is pointing in the direction that if you want to be, become massively large as an organization in the B2B space, you need to go in the mega deal direction, otherwise you won't be mega big. So you, you need to decide to want to go in that direction. Uh, but you can do, I mean, you can do it in steps. You don't have to do it overnight. You, you, you do it in, in steps. And 
interesting thing we've noticed in connection to your question is that uh, to do mega deals, the internal selling is often equally heavy because to your point, you need to get the organization behind you uh, to, to win those contracts. And often sales teams are struggling to get a go ahead internally, uh, which is half of the work often. So we looked at one, so IBM Morocco's largest deal ever. On the IBM side, they had 499 people signing NDAs. So only on the selling side. We don't know the number on the customer side, but already on the selling side, there were 499 people. But I mean, mega deals are applicable also for medium-sized companies like Climon, where I was running sales and marketing for the last two years, where we went from three to $90 million in order intake, selling smaller power plants to produce electricity from hot water. So we were less than 100 employees, and we still could do, at least on the lower end of the spectrum of mega deals, so the a few tenths of millions of dollars kind of deals. And we could do it as a, as a rather small-ish organization. So you, you don't have to be you don't have to be the Siemens and the Tatas of the world. You, you can be maybe maybe not you can't be 10 people, but you can be if you're over 50 people and you're doing doing things right, you, you can start to do larger and larger deals and they will transform you and, and in the B2B space, again, that's, that is the recipe to high growth. It is super tricky. I think there's an overemphasis on trying to grow hack the transactional B2B spelling. I think you find a lot of companies uh, succeeding in that in the first few years and then kind of plateauing out. And uh, I, I mean, there might come huge. I mean, even Salesforce transitioned into mega deals. So they started off doing smaller deals, fairly transactional, but and now where they have the by far highest profits and highest growth is in when they do deals with the Fortune thousands. That move up market is um, seemingly inevitable. You, you see mm. it again and again, and I guess this is just the logical extension of it. This is this is far beyond a move from SMB to enterprise. This is this is a move to the uh, to the top of the mountain, so to speak, in terms of the. The, the true mega deals. Now, you, you talk a lot about risk mitigation and that in a mega deal, it's not enough that you present a, a very lucrative upside. That's not enough to get these deals done. That, that risk ma- management, risk mitigation, really taking that head on is critical to success. Can you talk us through that? Sure. I mean, as I mentioned before, one big different uh, area is the size of the audience going even beyond the account into the ecosystem. But the other dimension, which is very different to smaller B2B deals, is the importance of risk mitigation. So as soon as you have big change, big amounts on the table, risk mitigation becomes vastly more important than unique selling points and value. So what you benefit from in the mega deal space is to be slightly better than the others. So we call it plus one. So if you're too unique, you will not win the mega deals. You you are like the others, but slightly different. If you're too different, you're seen as risky. You're slightly different. Uh, and then you're you're proactively working with mitigating risks and you bring them up even before the client is bringing them up. And most sales and marketeers, salespeople and marketeers are trained to almost cover risks. We're talking about 
the value prop. We're talking about how unique we are. We even overdo the unique part and we forget about risk mitigation. So what we've seen in the study, and that, that's something that I also use myself, is to bring up risks uh, transparently with the customer, but then have suggestions on mitigations. But if you can cover all risks, you're, no one believes you. So you need to have risks that are unresolved on the table because there is no mega deal that is risk-free. That doesn't exist. So, and, and buyers, they know this. So if you're saying, well, we are actually no risk, they go, oh, this person is lying. So what you benefit from, which is uh, one of the five cornerstones in our research, is to proactively work with risk mitigation and both real risks and perceived risks. Uh, trust is a key part of large deals. So simple things like being on time, not lying, being transparent about risks before the customers are bringing it up. Things like that are very beneficial. So people that don't fit in the mega deal environment, they're the ones that go, no, no, Steve, that's not a problem. We, we, we have a solution for that. And then they try to quickly move on to another point. So the, the, what's, what's counterintuitive is that, so most people think that if we don't talk risk, the customer won't find out. But in the mega deal space, I mean, they have to find out. It's, it's such a big thing for them that they are researching you to death and they're really trying to find risks themselves. And, and if you bring it up, you are seen as super trustworthy. So you're kind of proactively building on the trust factor, which is in the end of that deal, the most important factor. That's really interesting. So oftentimes uh, you hear salespeople talking a lot about objection handling and so forth. This this is so much more than that. This This is really transparency about these are the risks. Let's put them on the table. Let's work through them. Let's partner to manage these risks down to an acceptable level. Yeah. That, that, that's a world different from avoiding them or, or thinking that you can quickly handle them as objections and, and uh, divert yeah. the attention uh, somewhere else. I mean, does, what, can you give us an example of what that, maybe how the risk piece has played out in a deal that, either a deal that you've personally been involved in or one you've learned a lot about in your interviews? Yeah. So, well, I, I just want to say one more thing. So, so the easy takeaway here is to design a workshop format for risk mitigation that you proactively build into your sales process and you bring it up with the customer setting. So, are you available this date? We'd like to run the risk mitigation workshop. It's a part of our standard procedure. And then you have prepared things that you can mitigate, but also things that you can't. And and the, the things that you can't, so this is a trait among the mega dealers. They're quite cynical in a way. So they, they gladly tell you a risk and they say, and this one can't be resolved. And they're just silent. Whereas a, a non-mega dealer will go, yeah, but that's not, it won't happen. It's so unlikely. It's, it's kind of, it's, I mean, that's just people on the other side are pretty smart. So they figure that out. You don't have to throw away your credibility saying that. So you've seen a personality trait among mega dealers, which is more CEO-like than the classical, hi, it's Chris, Sweden, boom, boom, boom. They're kind of more, if you know what I mean. So if they come to CEOs and put them next to 100, Average salespeople, you see a personality difference. So the magazines are more CEO-like. So what you can do to mitigate risk and what we did, for example, at Climate, so we created a 
customer financing company called Basel Capital, which now, by the way, has Bill Gates and, and Richard Branson and uh, Jeff Bezos and Jack Ma and a few others involved as investors. So, so that company is, so all of a sudden we could bring to the client great equipment for building power plants where you produce electricity from hot water, but also we bring a combination of own money from the finance company blended with the Swedish government bank that secured the loan part of those, those, those deal fundings, which reduce obviously the risk significantly. And actually financing is a really important part of the risk mitigation piece, which is kind of obvious. Yeah, I'm very intrigued by, by the idea of the risk mitigation workshop. I mean, that, it seems like that is a super proactive and transparent way of, of addressing it's the simple, It's the simple, easy action you can introduce tomorrow. But before you introduce it, the way the client run a workshop internally where you lay it out and you, and you go, and, it, and this goes so much against the DNA of a sales and marketing person. But so people go, yeah, but that's something really risky. That's not, they, they, they be, you look at their body language, really uncomfortable, but you need to lay it out and then really between yourselves, be clear about these are risks for our clients. When they engage with us, these are risks that they are taking, things that are connected to your technology or solution, but also things that, they, that will affect them to, to trigger other risks internally, like around their organization or people leaving, et cetera. So it's not just uh, technical risks. It's also other risks. Yeah, risk is something that just doesn't, doesn't come into the conversation enough, I think. I, I, you know, we're no. so often as, as sales and, and as marketing people, you know, we're, we're so focused on upside. We're focused on ROI. We're focused on, uh, you know, whether we're evangelizing a new approach to something or we're, we're selling an incremental improvement. We, we tend to avoid any talk of risk. It's the, uh, it's the unspoken the unspoken thing in the room. And, and uh, I think this is a really fascinating aspect of, of mega deals is that you can't possibly avoid it. You can't possibly totally. ignore it. It's, it's real. Let's get it out on the table and, and, and thereby absolutely, you know, not only significantly enhance our own credibility, as you said, but, but really work towards a, a truly mutually advantageous partnership with our customer. And I mean, that's, seems like that's that's the pinnacle of what b2b selling ought to be and so there's one aspect that we see that the the leading companies are doing in the mega deal space so they even introduce risk mitigation into their offering so they design their offering to avoid risk so but they add service pieces they add product pieces that are avoiding risk and all of a sudden since risk is such a pivotal thing for the big companies to avoid, they gladly pay a, a, a substantial premium if they find that you have, you're credible as a company, your people are credible, the way you've mitigated risk around what you're selling is really solid, and you've even designed it into how product and solution works and what, what it kind of designed. So I have risk mitigation as a design part of R&D. Then... So, so there's so much profit to get from that. Uh, you, you, it's, uh, I, can't, I can't emphasize it enough. This has been an excellent first half to our talk, Christopher. Uh, I think we've, we've laid a really good foundation to 
understanding what a mega deal is that it's a lot more than just being big it this this complexity not just of the solution but of the of the deal itself and of of the the organization and beyond that of the ecosystem in which this deal operates the way it involves change management and not just delivering a, a large price tag commodity item and and this whole topic of of managing and mitigating risk in a in a very upfront proactive way i think this is really great foundation for to set us up for the second half where i really want to there i want to get into making this really applicable for those of us who don't work in organizations that are moving mountains like that Right. How can we, what can the rest of us learn from, you, you talked a lot about the mindsets of these individuals, this, this, this CEO-like orientation, you talked yep. about the alignment within the firms, and then I also want to get into the, the tactics and the tools. Uh, you talk about, in, um, I've seen you speaking uh, at various conferences, and you talk about bee swarming. You talk about social selling. Uh, we haven't really talked about, in a tactical way, the role of marketing in here. There's so much goodness for us to get and the, in. And the role of marketing is vast. And so this is interesting, actually, a, a data point. So a lot of research on brands are showing that in the complex world, a B2B complex world, the brand has a higher percentage value in a B2C world, but that is not believed by the B2B world. But in our research, that's exactly in line with what we see. So you can be even more marketing driven in a mega deal company than you are in a, in a simpler deal company. So much goodness for us to get into in the second half. Thank you so much, Christopher Engman, multiple founder leader, mega deal seller, mega deal researcher, and co-author of the forthcoming book, Mega Deals, How Multi-Billion Dollar Deals Are Done and What the Rest of Us Can Learn From It. Thank you so much for joining us today, Christopher. And I'm so looking forward to episode number two. Thank you, Steve. You've been listening to the Flip My Funnel podcast. To make sure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you have an iPhone, we'd love for you to open the Apple Podcasts app and leave a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.